Well, we have been doing a series called Ode to Joy. We've been looking at what uh, the Bible has to say about joy. And um, we've been looking at not only the importance and the good news that, that we uh, as disciples should be characterized by joy, okay, but also just how important that is to reach a lost world that's not very happy. Okay? So we've been, been examining the importance of being joyful. All right? Now, two weeks ago, we looked at foundations for joy. And we basically covered two things. We, we realized, one, that while God is many things, he has many attributes, he's holy, he's perfect, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent. But one of the essential attributes of God is he is joyful. He is fully satisfied. He's, ha- he's a happy God. And your view of whether God is happy or not matters in uh, the way you as a follower of the Lord are going to act, all right? So uh, point number one, God is a happy God. Point number two, he wants us to be happy in him, okay? That's not the health wealth gospel. That's just the truth that he is glorified. He's most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So you, if you miss that, you can go back and, and uh, look at the, the sermon called Foundations. And then we did one called Perspectives. And really what we did was we took a, an eternal perspective look at heaven and hell and the church. All right? Getting the big picture helps in the daily grind. All right? Then last week, uh, we started with Tom Brady, saw that he was the GOAT. And then we looked at the ultimate goat of all time, King Solomon, who had everything you could want, and he said, life is meaningless. There is no satisfaction in life. And we found out that uh, he had things reversed. He was trying to find ultimate satisfaction in the good gifts of God, but not in God himself. And uh, the, the solution is not necessarily to throw everything away, but to take those gifts off the throne and put God back on the throne. I called it de-idolizing. Right? Now, today, I'm simply going to call the, the sermon pragmatics. Right? Practical things that help us to experience the joy of the Lord. Okay? Um, so I'm going to give you four things. Um, I pulled out the thesaurus. And all four of them begin with the same letter. Yeah, thank you. You know what makes me happy? (laughs) Alliteration, yes. Just working hard at making them all work. So first one we're going to look at is the calendar. Okay? What do I mean by the calendar? God gave Israel a calendar filled with 71 holidays or holy days, right? including the Sabbath. Like the Day of Atonement and Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost and the weekly Sabbath. So 71 days is 
20% of their year, one-fifth of their year, they were to put everything else aside and devote themselves as individuals, as families, and as a community to celebrating God. Right? 20% of their calendar was fixed. Okay? Um, let, me, let me also point out that in addition to those 71 days, three of those festivals required every male to travel from wherever they lived to the temple in Jerusalem. So Exodus 34 says this, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. So uh, sometimes when people study the gospels, they go, how many times did Jesus travel from Nazareth or Capernaum to Jerusalem? And they count it up and they debate, was it three times or four times? I think it was three times a year, at least from when he was 12 years old till his last visit. So 60 times Jesus would have traveled. It's about a 75 mile, but if you go through all the side roads, a lot of times they went uh, to the other side of the Jordan and then came back. It's about 100 miles if you do all the back roads. Um, And we don't the only time we see Jesus riding an animal is on Palm Sunday when he rides a donkey into Jerusalem. A, a borrowed, borrowed donkey into Jerusalem. All the other times would have been him walking. Um, I say that because if you take the 71 festival days, but then you add travel days to that, that probably adds three more weeks to the festival uh, calendar of an Israelite. And, and this required a lot of faith for two reasons. One, look at all the, the non-work time that you're giving up. You could be putting in more time, making more money, so you're trusting that taking all this time to worship God, uh, God's going to take care of us, he's going to provide for us, Okay. Then secondly, if all the men are going to Jerusalem, that leaves the land unprotected, which is why, look at verse 24. Part of the command involves this promise. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord, your God, three times in the year. God will provide, and he will somehow work in the hearts of the enemies that they will not steal the land as they go to worship the Lord in Jerusalem. Okay? Um, Now, this requires quite an effort. And you could think, as an Israelite, oh, this time, how am I supposed to pull it off? Well, God doesn't just give the command to do this, but he, he tells them the attitude that they're to have as they celebrate. In Deuteronomy 16.11, talking about the Passover, he says this, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. 
The, the way you're to celebrate Passover, you shall rejoice. And I think that is both a responsibility and a response. When you celebrate the Passover, you are to bring an attitude of rejoicing. And when you participate, you know what it's going to produce? Rejoicing. There, there's a, a, an expectation that you are to celebrate with rejoicing, and it will produce rejoicing. There was a festival, it was a week long, the Feast of Booths, where they would build a, a, a little tent, and you would live in the booth for a week. Oh, it's camping. Well, um, it, it was, but that could get old. You know, Grandpa going out to the, <laughs> the booth again. Um, but do you know what the Jews referred to when they referred to uh, the Feast of Booths? They called it the season of our rejoicing. It, it wasn't to be a drag. It was to be a time of celebration. The last time we were in Jerusalem, it just so happened that they were celebrating Purim, which is a remembrance of Esther going to the king and rescuing the Jews from being annihilated. And um, there is a, they are to take a day to fast. But then it turns into a festival, and they're all dressed up in costumes. It's kind of like Halloween. All the kids and everybody's wearing costumes. They, they sell, uh, we have trick-or-treat treats. They sell Purim treats. And they go to the wall and they read the story of Esther. And whenever Haman's name is read, they go, boo, hiss. And they celebrate Purim. Right? Now, here's what I want you to see. God embedded these holidays, these holy, holy days, in their calendar so their year would be built around repentance and rejoicing. Okay, But God fixed the calendar. Now, the only way you could be a faithful Jew and celebrate these festivals and these Sabbaths was if these days were fixed. And then all the other activity of your life was poured in around these fixed dates. Okay. Maybe you've heard the, the illustration before of the, the professor. He brings out a, a jar with these big rocks in it, and he asks the class, is it full? And they go, yeah, you couldn't fit any, any more rocks in there. And then he pulls out a, a cup of little pebbles, and he pours the pebbles in there, and it fills in all around. And, and he says, so now is it full? And they say, yeah, it's full. Now he pulls out a cup of sand, and he pours the sand in, and it fills in. Now, the, to really make the point, what you should do is empty it out and start by putting the sand in, then pour the pebbles in. It's going to take up about half of the space, and there's no way you can fit the rocks in, all the big rocks. And the, the little time management uh, lesson there is put the big rocks in your calendar and then let everything else, the smaller rocks, fill it in. If you don't, 
then the smaller things are going to fill in and the big priorities are going to get pushed to the side. Okay? Now, most Christians that I know are not what you call Sabbatarians. Okay? At least, at least they're not set Saturday aside Absolutely no work, no TV, no NFL. And if somebody in the family violates it, you stone them in the backyard. So not a lot of, not a lot of people I know are strict Sabbatarians, okay? Um, so it's, it's one thing to say we're, we're free, we're not under the law, okay? We are not strict Sabbatarians. It's another thing to say... Well, we'll fit God in and church in and the things of God in when it's convenient. Because it's never convenient. Okay? Now, um, I realize we're in this strange time of the universe called COVID. So this is not a, you know, get in church. Uh, you people who are staying away because of COVID. I know there are, uh, just, just so you guys know, um, we have people who are really susceptible to bronchial uh, issues. Some are in the medical community and they have chosen to stay away and I think we need to respect that. Um, I do know, I won't point them out, but there's a 90-year-old in our midst. There are people with... Um, uh, with diabetes, so I, I think we have to be gracious when it comes to different approaches to this, okay? Um, so this is not a, a rebuke of, of anybody during COVID. What, what, what I'm trying to get us to understand is the Israelites, while we're not under the Israel law, the Israelites' example was one of putting big rocks in place, in their calendar, and saying, that comes first. We're not going to plan anything during Passover. We're not going to plan anything else during this feast or this festival. Those big rocks are reserved for God. Now, there is a New Testament command which says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So whatever you think about the Sabbath, that's one thing, but this verse says don't neglect getting together. And I would think the, the no-brainer would be when the church has a, a weekly get-together, that has to be the top priority for the people of God. Most Americans do it the other way around. Oh, we're busy. We've got this. We've got hobbies. We've got traveling. We've got da, 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 da. Oh, and if, if it works, we'll go to church. Okay? Here's what this point requires of us. Not to try harder to squeeze God into our already busy schedules. but fitting our busy schedules around the big rock of God. 
two different mindsets. Do you view God and gathering with his people as sand or the big rock? Okay, so here's, if we had connection time and we were to discuss this, here, this would be a question that would be interesting to discuss. If our family was to change from an American calendar mindset to a Hebrew calendar mindset, what would change? Okay? If we were to change from an American calendar mindset to a Hebrew calendar mindset, how would that change your family? All right, so first thing, we looked at, and this all, you know what, this all adds to joy because God has, has um, he, he knows that we need regular intervals where we're called together and, and, and worship him and celebrate him, and that helps us to recalibrate our entire lives, right? So this is, uh, this is for our joy, not just shame on us. All right, so let's, uh, let's move on to the next thing, okay? Pragmatics. Care of the body, okay? Care of the body. Let me uh, remind you of the showdown that Elijah had on Mount Carmel between um, just him and 450 prophets of Baal. And you know the, the incident where he says, let's put this sacrifice up on the altar. You call on your God, Baal, to bring fire down from heaven. And I'll call on the true God, and we'll see who wins. And they call on Baal all day long. Nothing happens. All right. Then uh, Elijah calls on uh, the Lord, and whoosh, fire comes down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice. And then he says, grab the false prophets. And kill them. And uh, it says Elijah put to death the 450 prophets of Baal. So whether he did it himself or he had some helpers, I don't know. Okay. So, but he, he, he does this, this uh, superhuman feat of killing 450 false prophets. And then they're up on this mountain and the king, King Ahaz, or uh, Ahab, uh, was up on the mountain with him. And the difference between Elijah and Ahab is Ahab has a chariot with a bunch of horses. And here's what happens. It says, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments, you know, gird up your loins, and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So that Jezreel was 20 miles away. He outruns the horse-drawn chariot of Ahaz. So picture the Kentucky Derby. You've got all the horses in the stalls. And up comes this prophet in a robe, and he gathers it up, and he gets in the stall. And ding! And they race around the track, and the, Elijah wins the, the Kentucky Derby. All right? Now... Um, that's a supernatural miracle. But it was done in a natural body. 
in just an ordinary human body, and he was exhausted. And he hears that Queen Jezebel was trying to kill him, and he becomes terrified. He had no fear of man, but he had a fear of woman. And, and he just, he wants to die. It says, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it's enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and you know what he did next? He lay down again. He took another nap. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat. So more food. For the journey is too great for you. You're exhausted. And he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food, that cake, for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but I think there's a lesson here that sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is take a nap. Right? Uh, amen. <laughs> or eat a cake. Eat a cake, right? Um, here, who said this? For me, adic- adequate sleep is not just a matter of staying healthy. It's a matter of staying in the ministry. I'm tempted to say it's a matter of persever- persevering as a Christian. Who? You're right, John Piper said that. Um, now, here's, here's what's interesting. When we read the term, um, I'm tempted to say it's a matter of persevering as a Christian, I think Piper's using a theological term. Persevering, uh, the, the theological term is perseverance of the saints or persevering in the faith. In other words, uh, if if uh, you don't persevere to the end in faith, you're not going to make it to heaven. You say, I thought Piper was a Calvinist, and uh, he didn't think you could lose your salvation. He doesn't think you can lose your salvation. Okay? But he does believe that if you don't persevere to the end, you were never saved. He doesn't have a magical view of salvation. Pray the prayer, believe in Jesus, and live like the devil the rest of your life. No, you will persevere in your faith. And he says getting sleep, and in the context, he talks about the older he gets, the more he needs. And I understand that. Okay. Um, And if he doesn't get his sleep, he doesn't know that he would persevere. You know, Paul says something similar to that in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
And a lot of people interpret that to mean Paul would be disqualified from being a preacher, from being in the ministry, because he can't lose his salvation. He would be disqualified from ministry, not from salvation. But that word uh, that he uses, adokimos, um, it's used elsewhere to talk about shipwrecking your faith. In uh, 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. That's the same word. I think Paul is, is saying that his salvation, he believes salvation is secure, but some will be shown by their lack of perseverance to have never truly been saved. There's the end of salvation and there are means to the end. And I can't assume the end if I neglect the means. Okay? All that to say, taking care of the body cannot be separated from persevering in the faith. Now, let me quote Spurgeon. And I, I, I quote Spurgeon because he was a fat guy. All right. <laughs> and um, so Spurgeon talked about this. Moody was a chunky guy. All right. Um, so um, I don't think these, are, these guys are saying you got to be a gym rat or you're going to hell. Okay. Um, I, I think they're saying, come on, let's use some common sense. The spiritual and the physical are so tied together that when we neglect the physical, it affects the spiritual. And when the spiritual is affected, our joy is affected. So here's what, here's what Spurgeon wrote. The condition of your body must be attended to. A little more common sense would be a great gain to some who are ultra-spiritual and attribute all their moods to feelings to some supernatural cause. Like, oh, it's Satan. It's supernatural warfare coming against me. Or he or she's backsliding. Okay, there's all these spiritual things. And he says, um, the, the real reason may lie far nearer at hand. Has it not often happened that dyspepsia or indigestion has been mistaken for backsliding and bad digestion has been set down as a hard heart? Okay. If... A sign of salvation is the fruit of the Spirit. And if it's hard to be joyful when we're sick and tired and unhealthy all the time, is not taking care of our bodies a spiritual necessity? So, here's another question. Where could I change my habits to change the amount of joy in my life? Where can I change my habits to change the amount of joy in my life? All right, third one. Contentment. So last week we looked at Ecclesiastes, and I, boy, I, I was tempted to say, let's stay in Ecclesiastes and write it out to the end. And then I started, I bought some commentaries, and I started studying, and I'm like, oh, this book is, there's, there's, it's, it's not a book that you preach verse by verse, kind of like Proverbs. You do it more thematically, and I, I set it aside. But I did come across some interesting verses. 
And um, here's one in four, four, four through six. So this is about work. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Now, I do think Solomon sometimes uses hyperbole, exaggeration. He goes, you know, I looked at, at uh, the neighborhood, and this guy's trying to keep up with this guy, and this guy's trying to outdo that guy, and it's all about envy, right? And then he says, this also is vanity, right? it's hard to grasp, in a striving after the wind. So he says, on the one hand, there's the keeping up with the Joneses and the workaholic who puts all this effort into getting ahead. But the very next sentence, he says this. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. This is another reference to the sluggard, the lazy person, who does no work. Okay, on the one hand, you got the workaholic. On the other hand, you got the sluggard, who, who doesn't do any work, he just folds his hand and comes time to eat, he's got nothing to eat, so he eats his own arm. Okay? So you've got these two extremes. You've got the workaholic who's striving after the wind, and you've got the sluggard who starves. And then he says, here's the sweet spot, verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. So there's this sweet spot called contentment. Okay? And that may be different for every one of us where that is. You're not to fall into laziness. You're not to fall into workaholism. But there's a... a, a sweet spot called contentment. Let me give you my definition, okay? Contentment is four things. Working heartily unto the Lord, that's Colossians 3, while resting securely in the Lord, it's Matthew 6, don't worry. Right? Work heartily, rest securely, while living within my means, that's taking responsibility to live based on what I make, not on what I don't make. Okay? So work heartily, rest securely while living within my means while being truly grateful for the lot in life that I find myself in. Okay? Resourcefulness, rest, responsibility, and rejoicing. Working heartily unto the Lord while resting securely in the Lord, while living within my means, while being truly grateful for the lot in life in which I find myself. That's contentment. Now, the Apostle Paul, writing from prison, writes this. Now, the, the, the Philippians heard that he was in prison. So they sent him some money. 
And he receives the money and, and he's returning. The, the letter to the Philippians is a thank you letter. Of course, it's not just thanks for the cash. It's, he has to give four pages of instruction. But in the end, he says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Thanks for the money. Not that I'm in, I'm in need. I've learned how to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. And Paul found himself in both of those situations where he had abundance and now he's in jail getting, you know, half a sandwich a day. What's the secret? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, you see this verse, those of you who go to the gym. Some Christian guys have it on their T-shirt. They're going to bench press, you know, 500 pounds. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You drink the, the protein powder and whatever else they're doing. And the tattooed, you know, Philippians 4.13. You can do this. You can do it. I think that that misses the whole point. He's not saying... Go pick some impossible task and then bind God to give you the strength to do what you've chosen. What what he's saying is, I can be content in whatever situation God has chosen for me right now. The all things is the ability to be content, whether rich or poor. Okay? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a verse about contentment, not a verse about setting goals and pushing yourself harder. It's I can accept the situation that God has sovereignly allowed me to be in. So here's a question about your your joy or lack of it. Do I need to repent of discontentment? Okay, do I need to repent of being discontent? All right, one last thing. Let's talk about confession. And some of you who were raised in the Catholic Church are getting nervous now. Oh, no. Got to go to confession? Um... Well, let me first clarify this. Not all joylessness is caused by sin, and not all sin causes joylessness. So realize that, that uh, this one is talking about certain situations, not every situation. But unconfessed sin can be the cause of physical and emotional depression. Okay? Um, David, in Psalm 32, talks about hiding sin and not confessing it to the Lord. 
And he says, for when I kept silent, I didn't confess my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and, and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And um, we know from 1 Samuel that David spent a good chunk of his time by the Dead Sea because he hides in En Gedi, which is, overlooks the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest elevation on earth. And it's, it's in the Middle East. Therefore, it is the hottest place on earth. I checked the, um, the average summer uh, high, and it's 103 degrees. Okay, And that's the average. So it can get super hot in the sun. So David says, ah, it's like being in the Dead Sea area in the middle of summer. That's how I felt physically and emotionally when I didn't confess my sin. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Okay, didn't go to a... A priest, he didn't go into a box, he just, to the Lord, he confessed his sin. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And by the end of the psalm, look what he's saying. Be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. He goes from being discouraged and depressed and physically oppressed to joy and rejoicing. In Psalm 51, this is the psalm um, where he confesses his sin about adultery with Bathsheba and then killing her husband, Uriah. And um, he's finally confessing that sin. It's been least a year, because the baby is born and the baby dies. But finally, he comes to realize what he did. And he says to God, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Remember, Keith Green had a song where you would sing, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And I had a pastor friend who said, we don't sing that song at our church. We don't believe you can lose your salvation. I said, have you ever read Psalm 51? And I don't believe you can lose your salvation either, but I don't think that's talking about losing your salvation. I believe what that's talking about is losing the closeness, the presence of the Holy Spirit's joy. And then he says this, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you know somebody who's never wrong? Don't elbow right now. Okay. They're always right. They've never apologized. I, I, I've had not just 
Wives say that about husbands, but husbands say that about their wives. Oh, they're, they're never wrong. Okay. If they're a Christian, I bet they're not a happy Christian. Why? Because when you suppress the Holy Spirit through unconfessed sin, we cut off the life blood of the, the fruit of the Spirit, the foremost of which is love and then joy. Right? When's the last time you admitted you were wrong? You apologized. You came before the Lord and, and confessed your sin. Let me um, give you, remember a couple weeks ago I said, you know, we don't do Lent where you put the ashes on your forehead and you give something up for 40 days. But I did suggest that during Lent, you uh, do, do one thing, and I'm going to add a second thing to our Lenten list. Okay. First thing was, can you be thinking during this Lenten time, how can I be more uh, involved in the family of God. Okay? Not just an attender, but an, a, 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 an actual member of the family of God where you're interacting with people. Okay? That was one, and it was a, was a thinking, praying assignment. But here's the second thing, especially if um, you find it hard to admit you're wrong or confess your sin before God. It's real simple. From now until Easter, pray the Lord's Prayer every day. Now, I don't mean our Father who art in heaven, hell be that amen. Okay. I mean, think it through. Our Father, God's my Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be that. So think through each phrase, and then when you come to the, the part that says, and uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's when you don't just say that, but you think through. What sins do you need to confess to God? As we forgive those who trespass against us, that's the part where you forgive those who've wronged you. Okay? So God has given us the tool. It's a prayer that if we think it through and pray it through, we are going to confess our sins every day. And you know what? <sighs> a joy comes from knowing that God has forgiven your sin. Right? And that leads us into communion. So I'm going to ask the worship team uh, to come on up. But communion is another one of those things God has given us to help us remember what Jesus has done for us, and also to examine ourselves. In fact, in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread 
and drink of the cup. In other words, before you take the bread and the cup, examine yourself. First of all, am I in the faith? Secondly, is there anything I need to confess to God? And then do it. And then there's this, this promise in 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, first of all, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So if you're sitting here saying, uh, saying oh, okay, I'll think this through. Have I confessed? Nope, no sins. Guess what it says? Liar, liar, pants on fire, right? Rhymes with telephone wire, right? Um, so if you can't think of any sins, either you are perfect or you've kind of lowered the standard. But what happens when you do confess? If we confess our sins, he's faithful. That means he'll do what he promises and he's just What does that mean? The basis upon which he can forgive you is the cross. The just penalty has been been paid. So he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. There's the to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why don't we take just a few moments of quietness before the Lord You confess your sins to him. Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup. And now... Would you please stand? We're going to sing one final song.